The following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to the book of First Peter this morning. Um, you know, we, we were in a series uh, called The Children of God throughout the month of January, kind of leaning into 2021 because we were just, we just wanted to kind of recalibrate ourselves after the wackiness of 2020. And, and we just, you know, we, we had to make some changes to our preaching schedule heading into the rest of the year. But a couple things that were really obvious was we, we needed to speak about something and talk about something about being children of God. Um, and it kind of continued our series. So we're going we're gonna to talk about it today, and then we're going to finish it up uh, with some response next week. Um, and what we've learned in this series has been the amazement of being adopted by God to be his children. We've learned about being freed from the power and penalty of sin and the wonder that we are God's people who identify with, with Christ and then represent him in the world. I mean, think about it. We, we could be called children of God, but we're not just called that. We're called to go represent him in this world where we are literally his ambassadors, declaring the good news and demonstrating the power of Christ in our lives every day and everywhere we go. And then last week we talked about the importance of the family gathering and the importance of what that has in our souls. And, um, you know, uh, in talking to Steve, all you know, periodically throughout the week, I said to him, thank you for being a great example of what it means for our church to care for people, right? And we got a vivid example of God meeting our people and how invaluable the family of God is. But this week, we're going to look at hard things. We're going to look at the hardships of life. And, and here's what we're going to do this. Because in the middle of suffering and trial, it is really easy to doubt God's goodness. And it's easy to forget the work of Christ. It's easy. And suffering does not fit in the economy of our minds. You know, I have the privilege. One of the things I love doing is I love discipling and mentoring young men. Just been a hallmark of things I've done since I was a young guy in ministry. And I always have young men that I am pouring my life into because I believe I'm a generational thinker. I just think in terms of one day I'm not going to be here. And I want to have young men that will one day carry on this work of the gospel and, and when I meet these young men, I usually ask them some questions. I, I start off with, you know, what are, what are some things you want to do in your life? What kind of visions you have? Every one of the guys will say, you know, I want to go to college or I want to get a job or I want to do this, I want to be successful. But none of them say to me, you know, Dave, I, I really want to suffer hard. I really hope that life is just going to be painful. None of us do that. It's not in the economy of our minds. And it's certainly not in the economy of the formulaic way that we think Christianity is done in America. It doesn't fit. We think, if, we think good things happen to good people, and what we like to do is we put ourselves and those we love in the good person category. And we think that if we do the right thing, things will work out. You work hard, get good grades, get a college degree, get a good job, marry the right person, and things will just be happy. You, you, you will not have any challenges. It's going to be fantastic. And there's this formula that we have. And in Christianity, we put it like this. Believe in Jesus, live a moral life, pray the right prayers, have the right kind of spiritual disciplines, and you will be successful. 
And then the trials of life hit us with a cheap shot. And we don't have an answer. And things do not make sense. I mean, what do we do if one of our loved ones or we are arrested because we have declared that we believe in Jesus as our Savior? What category do you have for praying your guts out and your baby dying anyway? How do you view God in life when all hell breaks loose and a real tyrant is on the throne? A real one. Like in the book of Acts when they're dragging people out of their homes and beating them in front of their family members. And these are important questions because this is really what real life is about. You live in, a, in an anomaly. It's called the United States of America. What we're doing here this morning is a unique privilege that I know brothers around the world and I meet them periodically that they don't have this privilege and they are getting the snot beat out of them. And to be honest with you, Christians have fumbled the answers of this for years in America. We, instead of having a humble reply for pain and sorrow and suffering and grief and challenges. We've hid behind our, our ignorance and we've fakely smiled and we've said some really dumb things. Instead of a robust theology and understanding and a Christian understanding of God's work in and through trial, we've offered things to the world like your best life now. And it comes across as sappy. And the whole time the world laughs at us because they hear our formulaic way of thinking and living, and it doesn't make sense in the real world, and it doesn't help on Main Street. And it causes them to mistrust God on one hand and mock Him on the other. And we need this. Several years ago, if you've been in our church for very long, you know that we went through the books of First and Second Peter several years ago. We went through it on purpose because at the beginning of the series... We just had a sense that God was preparing our people to go through challenges. And we finished the book of 2 Peter, and within a short time, we had, uh, we had one of our dear members die. And we had to walk through that process with, with the family. And it was hard, painful, and it hurt. But our church had a theology of suffering. It understood how to suffer well, and we did. And when I preached that man's funeral, we were able to declare his faith in Christ and talk about what God was doing through suffering. We need this. We as an elder board, we're not saying and thinking that something bad's going to happen, but we have been saying we, our people need to have a theology for suffering. And we need to make sure that we give it to them. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So in your notes, if you're new with us, you should have got an outline when you walked in the door. There's a big idea there, and here's the big idea. The big idea is this. Because we're children of God, God uses the furnace of this life to prepare us for the next. So let's stand together. We're going to read 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9 together, and then we'll pray. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. We stand here because this is the reading of God's Word. It is inspired and God-breathed, 
And I know you, church, you want the Word of God preached and read. So let's, let's, let's posture our hearts before God this morning. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, through, uh, through, it, through that perishes, Sorry, I lost my place right there. Parishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we, we do not in this nation like to talk about hard things. You know that about us. And we don't like talking about hardships and suffering and pain. But yet all around us and even in us, stuff happens and it hurts. This morning, would you not only give us a theology of suffering, but would you point our attention to the Savior who is acquainted with grief, who suffered in our place. And would you, by your Spirit, visit us? Comfort hearts today, Father, and turn eyes to Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now again, the big idea today we want to hit It's because we're children of God. God uses the furnace of this life to prepare us for the next. Now, Peter wrote two letters to suffering people, and his letters are some of the best pastoral counsel that you could find on suffering and how people need to see suffering. These people had loved ones who were being brutally martyred for their faith. The emperor Nero took pleasure in tormenting and persecuting Christians as a way of covering up his political failures. And yet through these two letters, Peter gives his people an unwavering hope in a world of radical uncertainty. And yet, knowing the trials of these people, knowing what they were facing, notice how Peter begins his his lessons to them in verse 3. He begins with worship. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, making it remarkably clear that Peter, Pastor Peter, wanted his people to be resolutely pointed to the happy, good, perfectly wise God of the universe. Not, not the general gods, not the, God of the, the gods of the pantheon of the Roman gods, but he wanted the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the specific God, he wanted him to be worshipped. And he wanted his people to know this. And he's emphatic about it. I mean, notice at the end of the sentence, it's, It's like he's shouting. He has an exclamation mark. I mean, when somebody sends you a text message with exclamations, you should send them back 
stop shouting at me, right? I love you, but stop, exclamation mark, right? This is God shouting to us, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Peter singing and marveling, worshiping God. But here's a question for you. Is this how you would start a letter on suffering? Would you start with worship? Knowing what your friends are going through? Knowing that in this culture that many Christians were put on poles and lit on fire to light up Nero's parties? And you knew those people? Better yet, here's a, just a, do, a little bit of research for you. Just go back early March, mid-March of 2020 and ask, are your Facebook posts or social media posts, are they filled with worship? When you saw governments were putting restrictions on places and churches closing and businesses being shuttered? Because here, here's what Peter does. Peter starts with worship. Peter begins with God. He doesn't start with Nero. He begins with God. And we have to ask why. Why does Peter begin with worship? Well, we see this in verses 3 through 5, and that's our first point of the sermon, is reasons for worship. And the main reason Peter found is found in verse 3. According to his, God's mercy, he caused us to be born again. Now, what Peter's talking about here is that that moment that Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we are dead to God, but we're alive to sin. And Jesus in John 3 said, unless we are born again, we cannot see the kingdom of God. And according to Peter, God in his mercy caused us to be born again. God makes us spiritually alive. God gives us new life and we're born again spiritually. So in, in real time, in real life, here's how this happens. Somebody shares the gospel with you, the good news of Jesus, that Jesus lived in your place perfectly. He died on the cross for your sin to satisfy the wrath of God. And he rose again from the dead and he's now seated at God's right hand. And he did this for you. And the only way to have forgiveness with God and to be made right with God is to put your trust and your confidence in Jesus. And something in your heart says, I believe that. And you believe in Christ. That's what Peter's talking about. When that happens and we believe in Christ, God causes us to hear the good news and God gives us faith to believe and God causes us to be born again. What Peter's point here in the text is, This is why we worship. God has caused us to be born again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again. Now the benefits of being born again are immeasurable. A couple of them that we talk about often here are forgiveness of sin. God no longer looks upon us as sinners. He sees us as his children. Being made right with God. We're no longer separated from God. We have a right relationship with God. He's our father now. No longer our judge. But notice what Peter does when speaking to suffering people. How Peter then goes on to talk about these benefits of being a child of God. Notice that each benefit begins with the word to. Verse 3. The end of verse 3 we see we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, this is opposed, this is contrasted with dead hope. 
Now, if anybody would know Dead Hope, it'd be the guy who wrote the book. Here's a question for you, those of you who know your Bibles. What do you think this guy's hope looked like on the night of Jesus' crucifixion? Imagine for a moment, put yourself in Peter's shoes, that you're sitting at home, you've just watched the one whom a few days ago you declared to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the eternal King who is coming for your people. And then you remember vividly the night before when he was in a trial and people asked you if you believed in Jesus and you said no. And you did it three times. And then you stood at a long distance away and you watched your eternal king be nailed to a cross and finally die. And now you're sitting at home and you're looking back. Now you, you and I think about our failures a lot. Imagine that night. You want to talk about dead hope. So how can Peter say to us, we have a living hope. Well, here's how. Because on Sunday morning, a couple ladies went down to the tomb to go check on their Savior, and he wasn't there. And they ran and got, guess who they got? Peter. And guess what Peter did? He ran to the tomb, got inside, and Jesus was gone. That's why Peter would say, we have been born again to a living hope. Notice, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, what Peter is talking about is this. We, as children of God, have a living hope because Jesus has been raised from the dead. If anybody knew dead hope, it was Peter. And if anybody experienced living hope, it's Peter. And so Peter says to you and to me who are suffering, you've been born again to a living hope because Jesus has been born, been raised from the dead. And his point to suffering Christians is, listen, you have living hope because Jesus is alive. It's this living hope that Charles Spurgeon said, buoys up the soul, keeps the head above water, inspires confidence, and sustains courage. See, we have reason to worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy who has caused us to be born again to a living hope because Jesus is alive. Now, that would be enough to stop the service and worship. But Peter doesn't stop there. And some of you go, yes, please. That's not what Peter does. Verse 4 tells us that we've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Another way of saying this is, we've been born again to an internal inheritance that heaven is safeguarding for you. Meaning there's nothing in this life that will take away God's inheritance for you in the next. No tyrannical ruler, no disease, no death. There is nothing that will separate you from what God has determined to give you in the next life. That means while our lives may fade, our inheritance with Christ does not. While suffering comes in spades, our eternal hope is never lost. We have been born again to an eternal inheritance and secured. It's kept by God. Now, now this would leave a, an enormous dilemma. And I've known this dilemma. I felt this dilemma. 
You read the text, and I'm sure these people did, and they're reading along, and they think to themselves, that's great, I've got an inheritance kept in heaven for me. I know it will be secure. But the question is, am I going to make it? Because right now, it feels like everything's breaking loose. You've experienced it. A loss that leaves you speechless and hopeless and like you have no idea how things are going to be put back together. How are you going to make sure you're going to get to the end and get this inheritance that's been kept in heaven for you? And Peter does something absolutely remarkable. He brings a crescendo to your soul in verse 5. Going from verse 4, kept in heaven for you, comma, who are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, what, what he says to suffering Christians is remarkable. Your suffering might feel like it's ripping you apart, but your God, your God is guarding you. Your God is like a warrior shielding you from eternal disaster. The God of the universe is guarding you, protecting you, shielding you to ensure that you will gain everything he has planned for you. This world might rip you to shreds, but your God will keep you. See, this is, this is fantastic pastoral care. It's incredible, Pastor. Because what, what Peter's doing, so you can feel it. And you've known these moments where you have wept so hard you cannot stand up. And Peter just delicately picks up our spiritual chins right out of the turmoil that we're looking in right now. And right out of the real life struggles that we are facing. And he points our eyes up up to see what God has done for us in Christ. He, he takes us to see the joy and the privilege and the amazement of being God's children so that, listen, so that in the storms of life, we like God's children would cling to our Father in the midst of these storms and would not lose sight of what He has done for us. See, it's what he's done for us, not what we're doing for him. Note, look in the text here and ask yourself the words like guarded and kept and securing. Who's doing that? God is. God is. What is Peter doing? Christian, suffering Christian. I know it's hard. I know that friends are dying. I know you're losing your jobs. But suffering Christians, pick up your head. Your God, your God is at work. Your God will keep you. What great news. Now, this has real impact to our trials. Real impact to our trials. And that's the second point, is a Christian perspective on the trials of life. We're going to see this in verses 6 through 9, but notice how verse 6 begins. In this you greatly rejoice. Now, we've got to get our grammar right here, right? So if you're not a grammarian, sorry. We've got to get our grammar right, because here's what we do. We go, we say, in this you greatly rejoice, and it points into... The trial. That's not what Peter's doing. Peter takes this phrase, in this you greatly rejoice, and he's going back to, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance that is eternal, kept in heaven for you who are being guarded through faith 
by God until the end of all things. He's, he's saying, that's what we rejoice in. We rejoice because we've been born again to a living hope. We rejoice because God is keeping us and shielding us. And he begins this way on purpose. Because when we understand in our souls, we get it deep in who we are, the reality of being born again by God's mercy, listen carefully, we realize everything on this earth is way better than we deserve. Everything. Waiting for four minutes at Starbucks is way better than you deserve. You deserve for them to pour it over your head and drown you in it. Being born again to a living hope, an eternal inheritance, being guarded by God is the reason we worship. It's the reason we rejoice. This is the reason. This never changes. It's always objective. It's the objective reality over your life and all things. Everything's going to change. I mean, good grief. I mean, I'm 50 years old now. I can tell you things change. They change. Your body changes. Your mind changes. Your job changes. The way you thought about things change. All the time, things are changing. But this objective reality never changes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead. To an inheritance that is eternal, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for you, who God is keeping you. That never changes. That's so important because from that point forward in the text and in our lives, that's how we see everything else. And this is critical because in trial, everybody in the world is going through trial. Everybody. Nobody is immune. The Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. It's going to happen. You think your suffering is worse because you're a Christian. It's not. Your perspective needs to adjust to how God is using your hardships. And we spent time rehearsing the gospel because that's what Peter did. And he did it on purpose to help us see clearly a different perspective of trials than the rest of the world. Because everybody's going to suffer. People are going to die. We all know it. There's two things that are, you know, you know for certain. Death and taxes are coming. Everybody struggles with them. This will give us a unique perspective on trial and will help us answer many of these questions that we have. Like, why do bad things happen to good people? Or, why is God taking me around this mountain again and again and again? Why do I keep banging my head up the same wall? What is going on here? Here's why. If the gospel does not permeate our thinking about trials, trials will be more than disconcerting for your soul. Trials will cause you to start disconnecting emotionally and relationally from God. You have got to see trials through the lens of the gospel. That's why Peter does what he does. That's why it's fantastic pastoral counsel. And there's five things in this text Peter talks about with trials. This won't take us long, so don't panic. Okay? This, is not, this sermon is not a trial. Okay? Just make sure we're clear on that. All right? Verse 6. Trials are for a little while compared to eternity. Notice how he says it. Though now for a little while. 
For the non-Christian, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, here's the reality. Your trials in life are just the beginning of the trials to come. There will be a day that you close your eyes and you breathe your last. And if you've not trusted in Christ, the trials of this world will look like Disneyland compared to that. You will hope and wish that you will, please, can I go back? For the non-Christian, all they have to hope in is this life. So if you're here, you're not a Christian. The warning is clear. The gospel is given to you from Christ to say, come to the living God. God is taking you through trial to help you see your finiteness, that you're temporal, that you're weak, that you need somebody other than yourself to get through it. You need the, the risen Christ to save you from this life and the next. So put your faith in Christ. But listen, if, you, if you're a child of God, here's what Peter does. He connects your eternal hope of what's to come to the temporal suffering in this life. Notice, eternal inheritance, but temporal suffering. Eternal life, but temporal trial. When we see suffering in light of eternity through the gospel, we see our suffering is like a vapor in time. It just kind of comes and goes, right? You know, the, the steam that comes off your coffee doesn't last very long. What Peter's getting at is, this is how trials are, though now for a little while. And friends, just, just step back from your trial for a moment and just, just get God's opinion on this. Suffering will not take away the living hope that God has secured for you in Jesus. That imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance and salvation is being kept in heaven for you. But suffering, suffering is fleeting. Suffering is, is, is fading away. It's real, but it's for a little while. In the gospel, suffering compared to eternity with hope will last a really short time. The second thing Peter says in verse 6 is very important when he says trials are determined by God. Notice that little phrase there. He says, if necessary. In other words, trials only come to you if they're necessary for you. This is a bit shocking when you read this. This means that if you're going through trials, which you will, right? So if you're young enough and you go, man, I don't even know what this hardship stuff this old guy's talking about. It's just because you've not have enough life. Live life long enough and you will have trial. It's going to happen in your life. It's just going to be there. So if you go through it, here's what you can look back on. If you're going through it, you can know this. It is necessary for you to go through the particular trial you are going through right now. Now the question is, who's responsible for it? Who determines it's necessary? I mean, who, who does this? See, we, we think many times that bad things happen to bad people. So we have this math in our head because our loved ones are good and we're good. Why are we getting into there or not? This isn't right. Or we think the trials in life are just coincidental. I just kind of ran into that one. Really bad. The yin and the yang of life just coming together finally. The good, you know, we had enough good things. Now it's time to get bad things kind of level out the playing field a little bit. Or we think that karma is catching up to us. But if you read your Bibles closely enough, you're going to notice something. All the trials in this life, 
all of them are determined to be necessary by God for a reason. All of them. God knows what he is doing with us. And he is the one who determines who needs which trial. Meaning, every one of us are going to have our own individual trial we're going to go through, and it's going to be, if you will, deemed necessary by God for you, for your particular life, for your particular journey that God has you on. Now, this would be terrifying if the God of the universe were a tyrant, if he was evil, if he was sadistic. But that's not our God. What have we read Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he made us to be born again, caused us to be born again to a living hope. And he's guarding us with his power. He will never let us go. Though he determined that we suffer for a little while. And if God is perfectly good, perfectly wise, perfectly all-knowing, omniscient over all things, then our trials which he determined to be necessary, are perfectly fit for us to carry and walk through. He determined that they are necessary. So, just a question here. How are you responding to the wisdom of God by giving you your necessary trial right now? How are you responding? How did you respond in 2020? What, what were the bells that went off in your heart that nobody else knew but God? You see, this is important to trials because if seen in the light of God's goodness and God's moral perfection, we won't see trials as some silly joke by a narcissistic dictator. Because that's what we think. Like God's up in heaven just kind of playing a joke on us. Like, okay, God, get over it. What are we doing here? That's not our God. Christian, your God is both good and perfectly wise, and he sees it necessary, necessary for you to go through this trial that he has fit and shaped for you. And for me, whatever it may be as well, trials are determined by God. But then notice in verse 6 again, the trials bring grief. Hey, Peter doesn't take us out of the real world here. Grief is real. Trials hurt. Listen, there, there is no amount of balm as a pastor that I can put on the heart of the person who lost their parent. Many of you are so kind the day my dad died. It was really nice of you. Your encouragement was real, but it didn't take away my grief. There's no salve you can give to the wife who just lost her husband to adultery. It's none. And there is no amount of uh, comfort that's good enough to help the parent who lost their kid. None. Gr grief is real. Because trials hurt. And just being frank with you, this is where we as Christians really mess this up. Notice Peter didn't say, rejoice that you're going through a trial. 
It's not what he said. He said, we rejoice in our salvation as we are grieved by various trials. You're rejoicing in the fact your God has you. But you are still grieved. Our salvation, our living hope, helps us grieve differently than everybody else. Everybody goes through this stuff. Nobody's immune. Some will be harder, some will be less, but all will suffer. All. But the major difference is the Christian's perspective on trial. Trials cause us to grieve, but they don't leave us lost. Nor do they take us away from what matters the most. So we as Christians then can weep knowing this. God, God catches every one of your tears in a bottle. You know what that means? He cares so deeply for you that if he, it was like a bruised reed, he would shape it and care for it and comfort it until that thing is healthy. He's not slapping you around by your trial. That's not what God is doing. He catches it all because he cares. And we can ask God to deliver us knowing that our eternal life is guarded by his infinite strength. And this is why we can be real with grief. We can suffer. We can suffer well. Trials bring grief. Listen, all these phrases in Christendom, fake it till you make it, put a smile on it, get that, I have another name for it, stuff out of your thinking. And when people are grieving, weep with them. If you have pain, cry. It's okay. There is a time to weep and cry and wail and grieve while the same time, listen, rejoicing in this thing internally. God, I can't hold it together, but I know you're holding it together. You, you've got it. I get the trials bring grief, but it helps me understand how to navigate through them appropriately. Friends, trials bring grief. If you don't think so, uh, you, you, haven't grie- you haven't been through a hard enough trial. Nor have you sat with people who have gone through hard trials. Verse 7 tells us that trials test the genuineness of our faith in Jesus. Notice he says, that, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. One of the goals of God in the necessity of trials is that our faith would be purified like gold is purified. I want you to notice something. Gold is melted and it brings up the dross, but gold doesn't evaporate in that moment. What Peter's getting at is, trials aren't given there to show who's a Christian, who's not a Christian. No, no. Trials happen in the Christian to purify your faith. Your faith is real, so God is testing it with fire to bring up all the nasty stuff so that you can be prepared for something down the road that God has for you in eternity and to help the transition not be so vast. It's purifying. It's testing you. It's cleaning you out. And we all know what happens. Trials turn the fire up a little bit. And what gets revealed is stuff that's not so pretty. As a friend of mine used to say, it's when our cup gets bumped when we begin to see what's really in our hearts. 
Trials are the furnace of this world that God uses to turn the heat up on us to purify us. Meaning, if you're going through a trial given to you by God, you know what that means? You are a child of God. And what comes out is a genuine, truer, realer faith than what it was before you went into it. And notice something else here that I think is fascinating. Notice that your genuine faith in Jesus, which never passes away, is more precious than gold that does pass away. Meaning that God is more invested in your eternal faith than he is in your temporal riches. And also meaning that God many times will take away your temporal riches to purify your eternal faith. So if you ever wonder, why is there not enough month to cover the money? It's because God is saying, I'm taking away your temporal money to show you your eternal faith is way more valuable. That's something we got to hear in modern America. And then finally notice that trials prepare us for the glory to come. You see this in verse 7 and in verse 9. That our faith, genuine faith, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, obtaining the outcome of your faith as salvation of your souls. See, the trials of this world, listen to what they're doing. They're shaping you. This is the beauty. This is why God, only God can do this to you. God knows you so intimately well and cares about you so deeply that God says, I I want them prepared for what's coming. I'm going to shape them by the trials I'm giving them. Some will be harder ones for others. Some will be less for others. But God knows exactly what he's doing. And these trials we're facing, which God determined are best for us, shape us for the glory to come. This is one of the major ways that God transforms us to look more and more like Jesus. It's one of the major ways that hopefully, Lord willing, by the time when you're, it's time for you to pass on to the next life, that the transformation to be like Jesus in the next world doesn't take as long. God is just shaping you and, if necessary, taking you through hard things and molding you all the way through this so that, in the end, something happens. That on one side, we will hear our Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant, There's praise, honor, and glory from God to us. What amazing words. But on the other side, that our faith, which God has shielded, God has guarded, God has kept until the end, will result in praise, glory, and honor for God from us because God has kept us. How about you? We're going to get there, and you're going to shake your head and go, how did this happen? It's what's going to happen. How did this happen? happen. You're not going to step back and go, look what I've done. No, you're going to go, look what he has done. Look what he's done. He's, he's got us here. In the end, this is the final salvation that we all hope, our glorification. So here's what this means as we close. God allows trials on everybody. They challenge all of us. Therefore, as his children, he reshapes our perspective on trials and causes us to be born again so we don't lose our minds in the midst of challenges. If you want to know why, last year, your elder board 
worked hard to be measured, to be mature through all the garbage we were seeing going around and try not to be wacky and chaotic. It was this reason. There is one thing that matters. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All the other stuff is dross. And at the top of this change in perspective is the eternality and foreverness of our salvation. We will not be lost if we are in Christ. We are His, guarded by God, for an inheritance kept by God. Suffering is a tool in the hand of God to get you ready for glory, but it's also a tool in the hand of God to help you reveal to the rest of the world the power of Christ to stabilize your soul in a hard world. See, this doesn't mean keep a stiff upper lip. It doesn't mean show your weaknesses, you know, don't show your weaknesses or your cracks. You know, we got a lot of dudes in here, and dudes don't want to show off that they're not tough. Can't handle it. Kind of macho ourselves through it. No, here's what this means. It means, it may mean that you cry until you're dehydrated. And that you lift up your heart in the midst of that hard struggle with zero answers, none, except this. I know God's keeping me. And if he doesn't keep me, I ain't making it. It may mean putting your loved ones in a grave with sorrow and pain and an understanding of loss like you've never known while knowing that God is guarding you. Giving glory to Jesus and suffering does not mean we disconnect the emotion and the pain of the trial. It means we find ourselves secure in the grip of God because Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and he's right in the middle of it with you. That he's guarding you, he's keeping you, he's protecting you. The world around you is suffering just like you are suffering and you will suffer. Therefore, we will go through similar losses of loved ones as they will and similar sicknesses and similar pains. But here's the difference. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning as we pray... We're going to pray. I'm going to pray for those of you who don't know Jesus. Listen, again, if you don't know Christ, God is using the trials of this world to say to you, it's going to get worse. Turn to Christ. Trust Jesus with your life. Only Jesus can forgive you and make you right with God and give you access to heaven. Only Jesus can do that. Turn to Jesus. But I also want to pray for those of us going through trial. There's a lot of us. I want to pray this. Remember in our first series, the first summer of the series, let's rejoice in being children of God. Simplify your trial by marveling that God called you at all. <laughs> that God made you his child at all. You are a child of God if you believe in Jesus. I'm going to pray that God would help your tension get there, which will release you to say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I want to pray for those of you who are discouraged through trial because I, I want you to be able to trust in the all-knowing, perfectly good hand of God. 
who has deemed it necessary that you would go through this trial or these trials or the many trials or all the trials. Let's pray. Father, we, we need you so desperately in this. We, we are so weak and frail and finite, and especially in the West, we, <laughs> we think that suffering happens when our, our server at the restaurant doesn't show up on time. Would you forgive us for how we complain and bicker? And then, Father, would you turn our attention to our risen Savior? That we have been born again to a living hope through his resurrection from the dead. And because he is alive, our hope is living. So this morning, I, I pray, Lord, I, I pray for our friends are here that aren't Christians. We're so glad they're with us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help them see that the trials of life are being used by you to turn their attention to the risen Savior. And I pray as well for my Christian friends. Lord, I just pray this morning. I, I pray that the ones who are going through trial, would you just pick up their head and help them marvel that they're your children? They're kept, they're guarded by you. And for the discouraged soul, would you help them to see how good you are? Even in trial, you, you have deemed it necessary in your eternal goodness, your eternal wisdom. Care for them. But Holy Spirit, would you turn our attention... <laughs> to the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. May we marvel that Jesus is with us, near us, understands our weakness, knows our frame, and is sustaining us. Capture our hearts with this glorious Savior. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.